Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Jordana Levine, and you're listening to the Inspired Table Podcast. Each week, you'll be led down an inspired path of curiosity as I chat to some of my favorite soul-centered folk about the things that inspire me daily in the hope that some of that juicy inspiration will rub off on you. So pour yourself your favorite cuppa and take a seat at my table. I promise you'll leave happier, healthier, and bursting with inspiration. I am Jordana Levine and this is the very first episode of the Inspired Table podcast for 2019. Now I have been sitting on three epic podcast interviews that I recorded in December and I just got so busy enjoying the festive season that I never got around to editing them until now and they're totally worth the wait I promise so you'll get one out a week going forward and then hopefully I'll get around to recording some more interviews so we don't have to have such a gap next time. Now today's episode is for all city folk who dream of garden living, all black thumbs who wish their thumbs were just that little bit greener, anyone who's killed their herbs, guilty, let down their peace lily, mm often or is ready to turn their living room slash balcony slash courtyard slash kitchen sill into a Pinterest worthy lush plant paradise. Byron Smith and his partner Tess Robinson are authors of the beautiful book Slow Down and Grow Something and in this episode we chat about the potential of living off the land in an urban environment. I got so much gold out of this episode about chickens in the city, worm farms, beehives, and how to tell when my indoor plants are in need of a drink or new soil, or perhaps when it's time just to bid them goodbye. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we enjoyed having it. My partner Tess and me, the garden is our refuge and one of the calmest places in which we can be. It's a place for us to slow down from the crazy pace of modern life. Living in Sydney for nearly 10 years, we've found the need to create daily rituals that provide us with opportunities to slow down and cultivate our own recipe for the good life. We've discovered that gardening and cooking ensure we maintain a simple, meaningful life in the chaos of the city. That to me sounds like poetry. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, the intro for us is pretty important, I think, yeah, to get that right and introduce ourselves to who we are. And yeah. this, this good life that you speak of. Do you do you feel like it does come down to that connection that you have with the garden? 
Yeah, 100%. I, I feel the good life is kind of the dream for us and being outdoors and just being occupied in the garden and having that place to get outside and, and unwind from, from work and living in the city is is kind of our little oasis. So, yeah, what do you think, Tess? Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, we kind of live very busy lives. Like we both run a couple of, like there's a few businesses between us and mm. we really need to have that contrasting like the yin with the yang and the garden really fits the bill for us in that and it kind of unfolds to the rest of our lifestyle as well. You know, like we have the garden so therefore we're eating healthy, mm-hmm. we're being outdoors, you know, we live at the beach pretty every other pretty much every other second that we're not in the garden. So it's just, yeah, it kind of unfolds from that. Yeah, that's beautiful. So did you guys both grow up in the city or what was what was childhood like for both of you? Well, for me, um, I was in, I grew up on five acres um, down the south coast of New South Wales, a small town, uh, Maria. Um, so as I explained in the book, yeah, we had chickens and orchard and, and, and endless kind of national park to just wander into. Um, so we definitely spent our childhood days outdoors and it was only to come in for meals that we'd, we'd really need to come home. <laughs> yeah. And for me, I grew up on the mid North coast in Port Macquarie and yeah, not acres, but at the beach every day. So yeah, beautiful. That kind of. Yeah, yeah, smaller coastal rural town. Yeah, um, upbringing. And I mean, we've 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 been in Sydney. I think we've lived in Sydney for like nine years. And I mean, we've rented in little units. You know, those dark little units. I think everyone's done um, in an urban setting. And I was just like, well, we need to be outdoors more. If you know, everything. yeah, yeah. So how did you how did you remedy that? That must have been a bit of a shock to the system at first. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I mean, we didn't have space at the start. We just kind of tried to rent what you know we could afford, um, and with some some sun or a bit of a bit of grass. And I think yeah. you just made sure that your nine to five was out in the open in the sun. Yeah. You kind of cheated the system. <laughs> yeah. Well, I made sure I had an outdoor job. So. Yeah. Um, and then towards the end of our time span in Sydney, we we rented houses with gardens and the only way to do that was to share with friends so mm, yeah we had some epic veggie gardens towards the end of our sydney stint yeah and we introduced like um yeah, bees, bees um chickens it was um, quite funny when our last house we were filling in the rental application and they asked if we had pets <laughs> no knowing that we had a kelpie chooks and a beehive <laughs> bees like, don't count as pets right <laughs> Yeah. They're actually farm animals. They're not pets. Yeah. Yeah. We've got yeah. a cow, a couple of horses, but no domestic animals. <laughs> yeah, and it's all for, like, biodiversity and sustainability. So what's the problem? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, I do want to talk about that stuff in a little bit more detail. But first, can you tell people who don't know a lot about either of you what it is that you – what you were doing in your nine-to-five, inverted commas, life? Um, so I run a graphic design agency and that's kind of my sole focus. And then I do urban growers with B on the side here and there. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so Tess runs the branding agency and I run urban growers, which is an edible garden, um, company. It's very boutique. Um, we do, so like consultations for people, um, at home or at 
their commercial space. Uh, we do design, build, and maintenance, and also I've I've done workshops and and talks and things like that. So, um, yeah, I don't plan to have a huge business. I just want a business that allows me and other people that are interested in in horticulture to have a good outdoor job. Um, so yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell what what Urban Girls is about. Yeah, beautiful. And I guess that's kind of what is coming through in your new book, Slow Down and Grow Something. Yeah, yeah. I think what I've learned and what people have taught me in the city, um, customers, clients would would ask me, you know, how do I grow food? I'm in a unit. I've got no sun or I'm in a house. I've got this backyard. I want bees, chickens. So they would come to me with all the different um issues or interests they had and I would have to to work out how to provide them with what like the most they could get to 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 grow food and and cook from so the book is pretty much like thanks to what I learned from these people it's all the things that they wanted to know so that's why it's not a it's not a book for say um a gardener that's been doing it for 20 years no it's that person that's just like hey how do I actually grow coriander? Like, what's the story with that? <laughs> that I was my it? first question. Yeah, <laughs> and then, yeah, yeah, and and so it's really for the. It's really. I'm not preaching to the converted. I'm trying to get people that haven't done it to get into it. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. I had um, I had herbalist and naturopath. Erin Lovell Verinder on the show a couple of weeks ago who I know you guys know and it was great we were talking about plant medicine and growing your own plants and connecting with your own plants and people loved it but I had so many people write in and say but I live in the city like I can't grow plants and so that's where I want to start with you is like apartment living Mm. basic level stuff what Mm. do you think is like the easiest place for people to start that have no space and perhaps aren't so skilled in the garden. A book. Yeah. <laughs> Short Step answer two. is this, this book is like focused on that exact thing. Yeah. Um, and if I was to um, visit someone in a, an apartment with a balcony and they had a half-day sun or even full-day sun, firstly, that's a tick, and then it would be like, what do you cook with? What would you get most satisfaction out of using in the kitchen? Mm. And then from that list, maybe it's only 10 plants, but it'd probably most probably be herbs and leafy greens because most of the perennial herbs like rosemary, oregano, thyme, sage, I'm just looking out into my garden now. (laughs) I just planted them. They're probably probably like your go-to perennial herbs and they're always there, you know. And then your leafy greens like like rocket and spinach and kale and lettuce, they're always there. But you can grow those most of the year. And so if you've got room, start with those and start with those in, say, the biggest pots you can possible and in a location with six hours sun minimum with natural rainfall if possible and just be focused and observe what's happening and then take the time to kind of pay attention to what's going on yeah so so to grow leafy greens this is this is the cannot I, I think i admitted to you in an email byron i have a black thumb i've killed many a herb but to start growing leafy greens for me the conundrum is always i eat them every night and i feel like if i'm going to be growing them in an apartment setting i'm going to be picking them faster than they're <laughs> than they're yeah. growing yeah. and i mean we have 
three big veg events here and I still feel that way. Yeah, but okay. But just subsidizing, you know. Yeah. What you can buy from the markets as such. But, yeah, what do you think, Byron? Well, I think the key to that is succession planting, which means um, so you've got three big planter boxes, um, metre square each, so three square metres of growing space, um, and you probably wouldn't plant all your seeds in the three at once. You might do a succession planting, so a month apart. And then you've got things growing and flowering and then you're harvesting and you've got that rotation thing happening. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. and then you're throwing seeds in as you're pulling things out and so that's succession planting. And so, yeah, and a lot of the leafy greens I find like bok choy, pak choy, mizuna, mabuna, the Asian greens and things like that are really easy from seed and it's probably more economical just to throw those in the garden, ruffle some soil over the top, give them a water in and you make it sound so simple (laughs) the thing that i've learned from you as well b is like it's so important which to know which plants you should plant from seed and which you should plant from seedlings yes and like that to me was mind-blowing because so many people kill like coriander and that they're planting the seedling is that right yeah the seedling so yeah 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 yeah. it's like whereas you should plant the seed but that, can't, that comes just with experience. I mean, it's just yeah, there's things you'll learn as you go and that's part of the fun of it um, is learning what works and doesn't. But mainly your root vegetables because they're a root vegetable and you're eating the root. If you, if you damage the root when planting, usually it doesn't result in a, in a great beetroot or carrot or turnip, etc. Yeah. And then there's certain uh, herbs like coriander and dill which are just quite fine and when you try to plant them out they just kind of get stunted and then if they're stunted they're stressed and if they're stressed they go to flower more quickly because they need to produce seed so that you know they pass on um anyway so there's like seeds and seedlings are what you grow from ideally and then it's just working out what works and what doesn't but yeah okay so if people wanted to get like super basic in the herb department what do you think are the top three herbs they should start with that are just like foolproof, so easy to grow? If you want to kind of stick to sun, dry herbs and less maintenance, um, obviously rosemary, thyme and sage are like three of my favourites. I know they're common, but they're common for a reason. And mm-hmm. then you just got to use your, your premium potting mix all the time with those guys and, and full sun. Um, and then the soft herbs um so like the annuals would be parsley coriander and what would your basil basil yeah basil but would as probably, i yeah. said before i think it's so important to just plant what you eat yeah because you're going to be more invested in it and mm. you're going to pay more attention mm. i don't know i feel that way mm. Mm. Like we've got a few things growing in the ground and i'm like well i don't eat that so i don't really care <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> after those ones <laughs> yeah i like i like growing a few inches like i had chervil in the garden recently and tess is like oh what's that and i'm like well it's just french herb you know it's kind of aniseed it's quite it's quite delicate and nice and um and then our dog just dug it up and put a bone oh, under no. like all right well, we're gonna have <laughs> i'd like another kale there so yeah we'll put another kale there now so. yeah okay that makes sense that makes sense chervil's great in salads though mm. Mm. yeah I, I like it. I like some bit of interest, yeah. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about, it's not so much eating it, but um, indoor plants? Because I know in Sydney, especially with a lot of apartment living, people are just loving indoor greens. 
Um, what do you think the trick is to keeping your indoor plants alive? Is there a trick? <laughs> yeah, there is a trick. Um, steer clear of like self-watering pots. And this is a really common problem that in winter we we tend to just keep watering our indoor plants as much as summer. Yeah. And yeah. they don't want wet feet. Like pond plants, like aquatic plants, like wet feet. And no one has aquatic plants in their house. We have terrestrial mm. land plants and they don't want wet roots. So in those self-watering pots, often we just they they've constantly got wet feet and it's quite cold. And they'll kind of start yellowing and going soft, and that's that's an overwatering problem. And then underwatering is another issue. That's usually just if you neglect them and you're really just you're forgetting about the plant. You're just treating it like a chair or a piece of furniture in the corner. Mm. And then they'll start drying from the tips of the leaves back, and then so you know that's um, that's drying out. The other thing, for, so for us right now, as I look around the house, it's a, it's raining outside. So today is a day where I'd probably grab like half a dozen of the plants and take them outside and let the rainfall wash the leaves, wash the dust off, wash any of those little mites that kind of gather inside in indoor environments, wash those off. Um, also, when there's a storm and there's rain, there's like nitrogen in that rain as well. So that produces really lush, leafy green um, leaves. Yeah, so it's quite different to just watering it with a jug yeah, inside. Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, the key is, if I was to say that, would be have pots that don't store water and then take plants outdoors, indoor plants outdoors, and give them a full flood, like flood that pot full of water, let it drain out, and maybe bring it in a few hours and then let it sit for like a week or two, and then it might need another good soaking. One thing that you taught me as well is um, to... Make sure that when like when you're about to water a plant, make sure that it's fully dry. So like, give the plant a really good drink and then don't cure it again until the soil's dry. So that it's like, it's not just having little top ups all the time. It's like a, yeah. a well, flood and then a drought. Yeah, an, an inch, an inch probably dry, and the top inch would be good. Um, if you if you leave soil too long dry, it becomes hydrophobic, which means the surface repels water, and what happens the water you pour the water on the top, it looks wet, but the water runs to the edge of the pot, goes down the side, and then comes out the bottom. So you look and go, ah, it's it's done. But if you just dig down about an inch, it could be bone dry. If that's the case, take it out and repot your plant with new premium potting mix. Yeah, okay. So my, <laughs> so my indicator had always been, if the peace lily looks like it's dying, mm-hmm. water it. <laughs> You know, if those leaves are droopy, it's time for a drink. But that was yeah. probably too late, right? Yeah, yeah, it's too late. Or And usually it's pretty, it's kind of obvious because if a plant's overwatered, the leaves aren't usually br- like brown and hard and crackly. They're wet and kind of soft and the, sem- the stem is soft mm. and that's wet. And then if it's dry, obviously they start drying out because the cells have less moisture. Yeah. So, yeah, it kind of just, makes sense when you think about it, but yeah. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. No, you just got to exercise a bit of intuition, I think. Yeah. So um, that's watering. Okay, so soil. You've talked about it a few times with premium soil. When we're potting, like when we go to the nursery and we pick up 
a plant or some herbs or a tree, should we always be using fresh soil when we're potting into a new pot? You can't just take it out of its thing and stick it in there. Yeah, I think, I think why not? Like if you're investing in a plant, uh, especially a tree or an indoor plant you might have for like five, ten years or so, then, you know, spend $15 and, and get a premium bag of potting mix. Um, and when I say premium, that's the Australian standard red and white logo um, that says uh, standard, uh, sorry, premium, you know, and it's got AS and a number. In another country they might have a different logo, okay. but it's generally – to. A, to approve that it's um, a premium product, if you're spending $5 on a bag of um, potting mix um, and it doesn't even have a standard logo, it can literally be a bag of sawdust. <laughs> and I've seen so many plants potted in a bag of sawdust. Oh, my and that, goodness. Yeah, yeah. It's just like it was horrific. Yesterday I repotted about 10 plants for a client and uh, I won't say the brand name but I was – just looking at this stuff and it was just dust and, uh, and she's just like, oh, it's not growing. And I'm like, well, <laughs> this, this is why. <laughs> like beautiful sourdough. Yeah. You know, like Prince Vero Health is dramatic, but it's still called bread at the yeah. end of the day. Mm, you know I mean? mm. But, you know, that's quality. It's kind of, kind of what you pay for, I guess. Yeah. Okay, cool. So let's say, let's go a little bit bigger now. Let's say that you do have a garden. There's a lot in the book about and this is like the life for me this is what we were talking about before like the good life being able to have a little bit of space to have things like chickens and bees and worm farms so let's kind of break down all three of those because i feel i feel like you can have that sort of stuff in the city right if you've got the space because i I think people think that you have to reserve it for like a big property but like chickens in the city that's a thing, right? People have chicken coops in their backyards. Yeah, yeah we, yeah. we did. I, I think um, I just I think assessing first the birds' needs. So they need sun, they need shade, they need fresh water, they need food like grit, they need greens, they need grubs, so protein. They need to be able to scratch in dust and have a bath. So And they need room to roam and forage. So, um, you know, you might need three to five chickens for a family for eggs and then you need to build the enclosure and that kind of needs to be maintained so as like having a cat or a dog you need to check their water and health and take them to the vet if necessary so they're not just like there to serve you with eggs um they're definitely something you need to consider having and how long you can look after them and and you know not go away for for weeks and just kind of assume yeah. they'll be all right so um, and they are they are they are hard work. Like you want to let them out to kind of forage around, but they get into your garden and they can really, <laughs> yeah, turn it upside down pretty quickly. So, yeah. um, are there regulations yeah, chick- around I, chickens having chickens in the city? No. Yeah, some councils do say that the enclosure needs to be um, a meter from neighbors' fences and things like that. So, um, yeah, apart from that, all the chickens I've seen, the people have had, um, are kept pretty clean and just like keeping birds or aviaries. So, yeah. And, and you said before three to five, do they need friends? Is it? Yeah. Well, they're a flock. Companions? Okay. Yeah. They're just a flock bird. So they like to have, um, they like to have friends. 
So yeah, and I like to have friends. <laughs> when when you have them together and you watch them um, walk around the yard and and dust bath together and, and feed together, you go, oh yeah. So they're definitely a social. These are definitely a social animal. So yeah, are there people who? And I don't know. Maybe this is part of what you do as well. But are there people that will come and like set it all up for you so you're good to go? Yeah, well, that's kind of what we do. Yeah. Um, we do we do um, set those enclosures up. Uh, I mean, custom custom ones, or I mean, you can also go to hardware stores and buy kind of pre-made cages, but they're often pretty small. So um, I think the only real way to do it is is look at the best position in your backyard and then build something into that. And so it looks nice as well aesthetically. It needs to kind of fit in with the landscape. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. yeah, yeah. So, and, and let's look at, at the end of the day, if you're pretty handy with tools um, and some timber and chicken wire, um, you can do it. Um, I'd just probably be wary of the fact that there are still cats and foxes and the odd stray dog that can get into a yard. So, mm-hmm. yes, something to consider. Okay, let's talk about, <laughs> let's talk about worm farms. I had a worm farm one time. Such a glamorous time. I know. <laughs> but, so the council, I don't know if it's across Australia, but the council in Waverley was giving them out at one point, I think, and I ended up with this big green worm farm. Um, and it just, for me, became a lot of mouldy vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you were very enthusiastic by yes. the sound. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think council, I can, you know, it's like, yeah, they, they do give out uh, worm farms and they also give out uh, compost bins. Um, so, yeah, with worm farms, it's basically kitchen food scraps, um, vegetable and fruit, and, quite, and, you know, your scraps cut up quite small um, so they can eat it much quicker rather than, say, a big chunk of cauliflower. You know, you just kind of make things a bit smaller for them, centimetre cube kind of thing, um, and put it in to the, the top of the worm farm and just let them eat it. And if you can see that they're not consuming the food that quickly, so they should be pretty much going through there and it dissolving into a soil and turning it into like a black worm casting. If that's not happening and it's getting sticky and there's flies in there, you need to just stop and just give it a break. And then maybe that, maybe that, some of that green waste can go into the compost or the green bin. But yeah, it's just, it's just, and it comes with just experience, you know? It's just how much do they need to eat? Like feeding a pet, don't overfeed, don't underfeed. Yeah. So do you guys, do you guys have worms? Yeah. So we got worms. So they basically, we put the, we put our kitchen scraps into the top of the box and we get two things, which is, beneficial for plants is you get the worm castings which is like a, a soil and you can take that out what's it yeah it's an uh, it's kind of what the worms produce it, they eat the food it goes through their digestive system and it comes out uh, like a neutral ph so it's really good for plants so we kind of sprinkle that on our new seedlings and things and then the worm wee or worm juice or whatever you like to call it is just the liquid at the bottom and you can basically mix that in with water to about one to ten in a watering can and just water that over your mm-hmm. new seed seedlings and that adds like beneficial bacteria um back into the soil yeah beautiful. especially if it's a new like potting mix um that stuff can generally be a little bit sterile because it's you know it's been processed it's in a bag 
So if you get that home and plant something, the best thing you can do is introduce some worm castings, worm wee, or even a little bit of compost because that's all that beneficial um, bacteria and microbes that is, you're introducing to the soil, which the, the plant needs. Okay, so people who want to, like I said before, I had this worm farm in my apartment. I mean, it was on the balcony and we got it, we just picked it up from the council. Is that the, is that the best way for people to do it if they're in the city or like can you get them from the nursery? Like how does it all get set up? Yeah, you can get it from the council. Like if you go to a, sometimes if you even go to a council nursery, like where they sell plants, they sometimes have them there and if you, you know, show your, your license or whatever to prove that you live in the area, you, maybe they give them to you. Um, otherwise, certainly nurseries sell them. Um, hardware stores, whatever, like you can make them yourself. Um, it's just a matter of having a box with a couple of layers in it with a lid that you can put in the shade. You throw food in the top and you can take the castings out when you need to. And you can buy, you know, 500 or 1,000 composting worms in a bag. Wow. So you just chuck all that in together and keep the box in the shade and yeah. start just feeding them food and not, not overfeeding them. <laughs> Which is what I was doing, I think. <laughs> <laughs> all those flies hanging around okay lastly i want to well not lastly next i want to talk to you about bees because there's been a big problem with the bees right what's going on with the bees well i guess habitat loss pesticide use herbicide use um all those things around the world is just kind of adding to the loss of biodiversity not only bees but all animals and all, all animals are kind of you know um losing their homes and, and their habitat. So um, in terms of bees, uh, there's kind of a couple of things you can do as a as an urban dweller, and that's you can have a beehive yourself, and that could be the European bee, um, and that produces the honey that we eat, or you could get a native beehive as well. So there's kind of two options, and we've uh, we keep the European beehive here, so we get our honey from that. Um, and I've also in... I've also had previously. I don't have any here at this house. The native bee. So what's um, the what's the native bee? Um, there's about fifteen hundred native bee species in Australia, I think, and I think about ten uh, live in a colony. And so that species, Tetragonia carbonaria, is a little bee about the size of a piece of rice. And they live in a little hive, and they don't sting, and they just—they're a bee, so they just pollinate plants and collect um, nectar and pollen. Um, and so, yeah, they're quite cute, and they help help in the the vegetable garden for pollination of, of fruit and vegetables. Okay, and is that is that relatively easy to maintain? Yeah, it doesn't really require any maintenance. It's just initial cost to buy the hive, um, which is about the size of a shoebox. And you can buy them online and you just need to set them up in a garden so where there's like plants and trees around. So you wouldn't put them on a rooftop in the city where there's no trees and plants. Because okay. these little guys only forage, so fly, about 800 metres to a kilometre from their hive. So that, that in that in within that radius from the hive, they need you know a pretty diverse community of plants to feed from throughout the year. Mm. Um, and that plant and that that type of bee um, I know lives in like northern New South Wales and Queensland and you can keep it about as far south as Sydney and then it's too cold 
to I think they don't fly under about 18 degrees so we um my dad got a European beehive probably yeah. oh, maybe two years ago now and we had our first harvest of honey earlier this year yeah. and it was the most incredible honey Isn't I've it? ever eaten yeah yeah so yeah and in terms of honey and flavor like we in the city you've got quite a diverse range of plant species so you've got exotic plants native plants and they're all producing you know pollen and nectar which makes up honey essentially and so it's kind of a mixed blend of flavor but when you buy honey from say a national park it might just be from a, a spotted gum just so you know when you read the honey it's just like red gum spotted yeah, gum yeah yeah the bees are um, essentially just just harvesting from that tree species. So yeah, that's why beekeepers move their hives around. They follow the the nectar flow as well. So without yeah. having our own beehive, what what can we do as consumers of honey to help the bees to save the bees? Yeah, you can plant. Um, Flower, lots of flowering plants. So um, planting a bee-friendly garden is the title of a book out now, and it's 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 about planting a garden. If you didn't want bees or couldn't have them for some reason, um, to plant uh, plants that are flowering kind of throughout the year. So that could be native native plants and cottage perennials like salvias and rosemary and things that have flowers all year round. So yeah, there's that. And then there's also not using like pesticides and herbicides on your garden, like glyphosate and things. Um, and then probably sticking to local um, raw honey from a local mm. supplier, which you buy at the markets or buy from a roadside and you know the beekeeper and you know his operation is pretty sound and sustainable. And it just tastes so much better than that store-bought supermarket crap. It's so much better for you as mm. well, the health yeah. Like, you know, the stuff that... Worse and coals, I'm not sure that it's really doing you much good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right, so the, the second part of this book really is just the most beautiful recipes imaginable. Tess, were you behind that side of it? The yes. cooking, or was that a collaborative effort? Yeah, exactly. So, pretty much divided and conquered. Byron did the first half of the book, and I did the second half. Yeah. I'm definitely no chef, but I love spending time in the kitchen. So it was super fun. I think the upside down blood orange and turmeric cake is my favorite. Oh, <laughs> really? I'm going to have to try that. Just putting an order in for later today. <laughs> hint, hint, nudge, nudge. What I love about it, so my, my background's food publishing. I used to write cookbooks. And what I love so much about this is the fact that it's been divided into seasons and seasonal cooking. And it goes so well with what you've been talking about in the first half of the book, which is planting all of the herbs. So, I mean, planting all of the, the um, veggies and, and, yeah, and herbs. So essentially, was this all kind of um, created from what you guys had growing in the garden at the time when you were writing this cookbook? Um. Yes, over the course of about a year because obviously we had to cover all the seasons. But even more than that, just stuff that we always have in our pantry and fridge and on our dinner tables, you know. So I think for us, the way that I kind of work in the kitchen is thinking about what we've got growing in the garden and then how I can kind of transform that into something to put on the dinner plate. Um, And a lot of it, which you can see in the book, is, you know, like – preserved or um you know just concentrating on 
the plant itself rather than coming up with an entire meal. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's no actual real meals in there. It's kind of like a focus on a plant and then mm. how you can get the most out of that plant if you have a huge bounty popping up and popping up in the garden or if you just want to focus on that flavor. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty much... Yes, what we had in growing the garden, but also just what we eat on a day-to-day basis. It's kind of like this whole book is pretty much just like 240 pages of our life. (laughs) (laughs) And it is such a beautiful life, my goodness. What I do love about it, which is pretty much what you've just said, is, yeah, that, I mean, the ingredients lists are so simple. It's not overcomplicated. And you really are focusing on that hero vegetable or herb or leafy green whatever it is i've just come across a few um lemon sorrel recipes in here and i love sorrel i actually only discovered it a few years ago so, yeah. it's yeah. so beautiful it's a favorite when i i taught um uh, at a school the stephanie alexander kitchen garden program at yeah. bondi for a year and i was very surprised i planted the lemon sorrel in one of the garden beds and I was teaching grades three to six and I ended up having to plant quite a lot because the kids had just run through <laughs> recess and lunch and they'd just be going, lemon sorrel, where is it? Where is it? <laughs> I was like, yeah, it was like a stampede and they were like, coming to steal it. So anyway, so cute. yeah, definite favorite, the lemon yeah. sorrel. Yeah, it's just so flavorful, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's good fresh when the plants are a bit younger too, when they get a bit older, yeah, but anyway, yeah. Okay, so if you had to, I mean, you, Byron, you just told us what your go-to recipe is here for today anyway, the blood orange. What what would you pick, Tess, if you had to pick a hero recipe in here? I like all of the preserved foods. So, like, the beetroot kraut is my absolute favourite. I'm mm-hmm. I'm about to cook in a jar that I've had fermenting for a couple of weeks now. Um, but, yeah, any of that kind of stuff... I think I mentioned it in the book. Our favorite lunch is just like a plowman's plate. Oh, amazing. Just all the pickled vegetables on there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm obsessed. And I guess that's a really good way to make sure that you are using what you're growing as well, right? Like when you're coming to the end of the season. Exactly. And you can still have it, you know, through winter or through summer. It's, yeah. It makes it more accessible. And it's just back to how, you know, how we've always done it you know back in the day that's how they got through winters and that's how they did it and it's just it's such a nice art you know like it's it's a beautiful way of eating and it's so so good for you yeah so you guys have just had a little bubba who i've had the pleasure of seeing through skype um been quite well so yeah she's doing really well so have you guys thought about you know how you're going to introduce her to this good life through the garden and 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 cooking in the kitchen. Oh, I think I think she's I think she'll just find it quite natural, you know. Yeah. It's like she won't kind of know any other way. Yeah, it'll just be <laughs> it'll just be we we hung out in the garden and we cooked from it. That'll kind of be it. Um, yeah. so she was in the garden on what day two of her life or something. Yeah, <laughs> I took her for a little garden tour and showed yeah. her the, the plants that I just recently put in and <laughs> it was funny because when Tess was still pregnant we planted some radish seeds and I knew that when those radish would be ready, Dill would be here. <laughs> and it was so funny going back out with, with little Dylan and, and, and picking the radish and thinking, wow, only 40 days ago, like, yeah. yeah. She was in, in there and now we're, we're harvesting the garden. Now, so. we, now we have Dylan and some radish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So yeah, no, I think she'll um, she'll fit into this lifestyle pretty easily. Yeah, it's, I mean we live in Coldow, which is such a beautiful part of the world as well. It's very slow, and it's you know we've got amazing beautiful beaches that yeah, are pretty much empty most of the time. So she's um, she's a lucky little lady stepping into this world. Mm. But yeah, mm. I think Dad will do a great job of teaching her how to grow her own food. That's for sure. And so what's um, what's next for you guys? What's um, what's on the horizon? For me? <laughs> yeah. Um. I'm not going back to work until about Feb, March next year. Um, so I'll have some plans then. But what have you got on date? Uh, I am focusing on urban urban farms, uh, rooftops, um, doing kind of larger scale um, projects um, in Australia, Sydney, Brisbane, um, just trying to get bigger bigger impact sized gardens, you know, trying to get more biodiversity into the city. Um, so yeah, just focusing on doing more work still in the urban space, um, but also branching out and hopefully doing more um, gardens down the south coast as well. So yeah, just having fun with plants and keeping it keeping it a bit different and interesting. Um, and yeah, and raising a little girl as well. Throw that in the mix. So, so exciting. <laughs> so if people want to find out more about the work that you do with urban growers, what's the best place for them to go? Um, obviously our website, urbangrowers.com.au and then also our Instagram. We're pretty active on Instagram, which is just urban growers. Mm. Um, or you can just email me, <laughs> byron at urbangrowers.com. <laughs> at our you if you would like to chat okay i'll put all of that in the show notes and also this book honestly i'm not just saying it because you guys are sitting on the other side of skype but it really is beautiful and it would make a beautiful christmas gift for anyone who's interested in cooking or gardening i would say the whole family thank you so lovely to chat with you yeah you too and thank you for taking the time especially with little dylan yeah awesome thanks so much if you enjoyed this week's episode i would love to hear about it why don't you take a screenshot of this podcast episode on your phone post it to social media instagram stories is a great place to start tag myself at jordana levine And tag Byron and Tess while you're there at Urban Growers and let them know that you loved the information that they shared with us today. I know I got a lot out of it. I hope you guys got a lot out of it. Let's all live in an inner city garden oasis, shall we? Until next week, I'm Jordana Levine, wishing you an inspirational week. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started